Welcome to the C21 Podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Today we hear from Skybound Entertainment's Rick Jacobs about growing the Walking Dead franchise, acquisition plans and getting closer to fans through crowdfunding. From Mans Manson about directing Estonia, a new drama about Europe's worst peacetime maritime disaster. And from the Africa Channel's Ava Hall about the US Cablenet's programming priorities and expansion roadmap. The Walking Dead producer Skybound Entertainment and game publishing partner Fifth Planet Games struck a deal to jointly acquire Icelandic production company Saga Film in June. The move took Skybound's television operation into Europe for the first time while building on its Nordic presence following its $10.5 million investment in Copenhagen-based Fifth Planet in September 2021. Skybound managing partner Rick Jacobs spoke to Michael Pickard about these moves, how the company aims to tap into saga film success with titles like The Minister and Stella Blomqvist, how the US firm is managing amid the writers' and actors' strikes, and how it's bringing fans closer to the business than ever before. I'm Rick Jacobs. I'm a managing partner at Skybound, overseeing linear content. So that's film, television, audio, and digital here at the company. Skybound is a multi-platform company. The sort of core mission of the company is working with creators to create a direct bridge between creators and their creations and the core fan community. So we make content in all forms of media where we're media agnostic and just love to tell great genre stories for the fans. So what's unique about us is that we have the ability in-house to work in any form of media. So we have comic book publishing, video game development and publishing, board games, merch, audio, film, television, all under one roof. And that sort of model, we, you know, we lovingly refer to as the Wheel of Awesome, uh, which allows us to put the, the creator in the center of the wheel and then access all aspects of storytelling on the story they want to tell uh, in-house at the company. And uh, the company's about, I, I guess we're now almost 15 years old. Uh, we're most well-known known for being the company behind Walking Dead. And more recently, we've had a big hit with Invincible. Those are both creations from one of our founders, Robert Kirkman, who's at the core of the company is one of our creators. But we uh, we definitely focus on working with creators in all media in all areas. And, and you mentioned The Walking Dead. I mean, I, I kind of got the impression The Walking Dead was kind of winding down. The original series was coming to an end and, and boom, you've got two or three sort of new spin-off series launching. So how have you sort of used that franchise perhaps as a, a roadmap to what the company wants to do with all um, your various properties, whether, as you say, they're comic books, TV series, audio podcasts, Yeah, I mean, one thing that's really important to say is when we we worked with Robert to make the deal for the Walking Dead TV series, Robert was able to retain the licensing and merchandising rights in the franchise. So that's that really sits at the genesis of the company. So the Walking Dead opens up a lot of doors for us because we've been able to make a lot of content and extend stories. So certainly the TV series huge. Uh, AMC's you know uh, move to make multiple spinoffs continues to keep uh, the Walking Dead at the forefront and allows us to to tell new stories in tv and we have the fun of continuing to extend the brand and other forms of media as well so you know we've launched you know a bunch of very very successful video games that have extended the canon of the walking dead universe uh we have a very big character that we introduced in our partnership with a game company called telltale uh her name is clementine you know clementine was the lead of a, of a four season game story with telltale and then this past year we launched clementine 
in the comic book space. And, you know, we continue to be able to expand the universe of The Walking Dead. The great thing about The Walking Dead is that the, you know, the zombie apocalypse happened everywhere at all times. And that does open up opportunities for us to tell all kinds of stories all over the world. And I, I guess just tell us in terms of your work at the moment, what are you up to? Because there doesn't seem to be much being made at the moment. So how are you sort of working, uh, continuing to work sort of within the confines of the writers and actors strikes that are ongoing? Absolutely. Well, look, we're one thing I would say off the top. I mean, we are so supportive of the efforts that the writers and actors are making. We want to support the writers and actors and the effort to get everything that they deserve. You know, we're a creator focused company and writers and actors and directors and comic book creators, video game developers. That's the lifeblood of what we do. It's what we love to do. So we we certainly back the writers and back the actors in their in their efforts and hope that they're able to get everything that they deserve. Certainly for us, you know, it's unfortunate that a lot of our slate is shut down, but for good reason. You know, in the meantime, you know, there are other areas of, of business because we are a diversified company that we're able to continue to work on in publishing and video games and animation and you know because we're diversified the way that we are we are busy with a lot of the, that other stuff but for sure there's a, a fair amount of what we're doing that that is on hold uh in the meantime you know we're a growing company an independent company and always looking to expand so it has given us some opportunities to look at some other partnerships that we're growing some acquisitions we announced you know with you guys uh, a few weeks back our new partnership with saga film and so you know focusing in this moment on some M&A and some other partnerships has, you know, kept us really busy in this time. Absolutely. Do, do your kind of ongoing plans include a lot of AI script writing and, and sort of uh, AI actors putting uh, new projects together? How do you kind of see that side of the argument, which is just sort of completely blown up through the issues raised by the strikes? How do you as a company look at the possibilities of AI in the content industry and, and where are you using it? Might you be using it in the future? Yeah, at this point, we're not using AI at Skybound. You know, again, we're a creator-focused company. So all the com- we're, we are having many conversations about AI and what the usefulness will be for AI. But our conversations internally stem from the point of view of the creator. You know, what can we do or what does this technology allow to make the creator's job easier? So, you know, we're going to, we're probably going to, you know, see how things shake out from the union issues and, you know, follow the creator's leads in terms of how they want to use the technology uh, to benefit them in storytelling. You, you kind of indicated it there. So you've recently been quite big on the M&A side with acquiring Saga Film in Iceland. I mean, just tell us a bit about the decision to, to go for that, because I think as we discussed at the time when you announced the deal, you know, there's a lot of contraction in the industry, whether companies are sort of downsizing, uh, reducing staff levels, or, you know, their commissioning slate, and companies are even sort of closing and, and being brought in in-house further with the, the mothership company, for example. So you're sort of striking out, perhaps. We, we saw a bit of M&A last year, maybe the start of this year, but more recently, you're, you stand alone, perhaps, as one of the more recent deals. So just tell us a bit about what was the decision behind the acquisition generally, and then why Saga Film more specifically for you guys? Yeah, generally, strategically, we were lucky in that our fans and the core genre fan that we speak to is 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 all over the world. And we see it continually. I mean, it was great to be at San Diego this year with our comic book properties and video game properties because we got to see the love of the fandom for what we do. And that fandom is global, you know, and we see people from all the world come to San Diego, but we also see that convention 
convention audience thriving in you know all over the world. There's conventions in Stockholm, in 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 Berlin, in London, certainly in Sao Paulo, uh, you know, Tokyo. So you know, we're hoping to create content that appeals to that core fan all over the world. That also means that we need to be able to make content that works for local audiences all over the world and find that that place where our core genre fandom and what the local audiences are looking for merge. So for us, expanding into Europe, expanding into other parts of the world is a natural fit for us. We are also a very strong company and well-capitalized. So when there's contractions in the market for other people, that's for us opportunity because we can you know, look for you know, companies that we know will you know, are strong and will be strong again. And, and those can be investment opportunities for us. In terms of Saga Film specifically, there were a lot of touch points that made sense for the transaction, not the least of which an alignment of cultures uh, between our leadership and our view of the entertainment landscape as a whole, and specifically television and the way that Saga Film behaves. You know, I've known Kjartan for a long time. He's, you know, one of the smartest TV producers operating in the world. And so it was, you know, a great opportunity for us to work together and work with Beta Film, who, you know, he's been in business with for the last few years. There's just a lot of alignment around content, the way we approach you know, making content and the opportunity to make content for, for our core audience and appealed for him and for us. Uh, in addition to that, you know, Iceland specifically has historically been a, a location where you can drive tremendous production value in genre filmmaking. You know, we've seen everything from Interstellar to Game of Thrones shoot in Iceland and take advantage of those beautiful landscapes. Uh, from a timeliness point of view, with Iceland increasing their tax credits to 35%, we think there's a lot more production that's going to be going there. We also think this contraction that we're seeing in the marketplace is going to be a budget contraction. So having a, a foothold in a territory where you can get high production values at lower cost for genre content that we're looking to make also felt like a real strategic opportunity for us. And I guess another side of the opportunity is that this is your first sort of TV move into Europe. So what was behind that expansion perhaps and and can we see signs of more of that coming in the next sort of months years absolutely yeah we we have been working to expand our local slate for the last five years and have a number of projects that we've been working on all over europe and in africa uh, Latin America, Asia, you know, we just actually, you know, uh, delivered our first African original series to Freevee and Netflix. Uh, so we're excited about that. Engaging in an M&A in Europe is, is the next phase, next evolution of that process. So we've got a number of, of European shows that, you know, are, are, are getting commissions and now having boots on the ground is, you know, is going to expand the volume we'll be able to achieve in, in those territories. And, and yes, for sure, Saga Film is, is, is the start of the process of expanding in Europe. Um, there's going to be more transactions that we're working on that we're hoping to announce with you shortly. You talk a lot about the fans. I mean, how important are the fans generally, do you think, to to what you do? And, and you know, we know comic books in particular have huge followings and, and that naturally crosses over to TV when these pro projects are, are remade and adapted. How far in your thoughts are they when it comes to adapting, finding properties and, and sort of taking them in different directions? And, and how do you live with their reactions, be they positive or negative, and, and the impact that might have on the direction, the continuation of a certain project and, and what you do next? Well, we love our fans. I mean, the, the, it's really fun being in this 
side of the business because we have the best fans in the world. Our fans are better fans than sports fans. They're better fans than romance fans. You know, the, the, the fans of genre, our core fandom, they're the most passionate, engaged audience in any category or vertical anywhere in the world. And I should say, Michael, and, you know, I'm going to reveal my, my geek stripes here, but I'm a fan. You know, we're we're a company that that you know that is built by fans around our fandom. So it's everything. It's it's a part of all the conversations we have. And we love the positive and negative in the conversation that we get to have with our fans as well because we learn from them, we understand what they like, what they don't like. You know, from our point of view, getting to um make the kind of content that we make where an audience member will engage to the extent that they're willing to cosplay that they're willing to collect that kind of engagement is is priceless you know and it's 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 a priceless connection it's it's life changing for a lot of the people who we speak with so you know we've always had a very sort of i don't know this is maybe not the right word but a retail approach to working with our with our audience you know we're out there at the conventions all over the world year after year meeting with our fans speaking with them doing signings you know having conversations hearing directly from them and it's fun it's fun for us to have that engagement. So yeah, when it comes to the, on the other side of it, when it comes to content decisions, expansion decisions, for us, it's, it's always fan focused. It's always about how are we going to help our fans continue to engage in the storytelling that they love. And, and, and I guess that leads us neatly on to um, another part of the business that you've been engaging in recently, which is, um, I guess, for Skybound, a, a revenue generation sort of scheme. But for the fans, it, it gives them a chance to become part of the company and perhaps have a say and input in into what the company's doing. So tell us just a bit about the Regulation A offerings that you've had in the US recently and, and are now, I believe, about to be rolled out into Europe as well. Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, the Reg A, I will say this, the, it, the money making piece of the reggae is very much secondary for us. So, you know, we feel like our main goal is to create a more direct relationship with our core fans. You know, at the same time that we've launched the reggae, we've done a relaunch of our Skybound Insiders program. And the goal is uh, to expand our direct connection with our core audience so that we can, you know, make the content that they love. What the reggae allows us to do is engage fans in the deepest way possible, which is invite them in an early stage of the company. So we've essentially, with our offering that we did with Republic, we've now onboarded close to 6,000 fans as, as equity investors in Skybound. It's an opportunity that we feel like the fans have been shut out of. You know, the you know it's, I mean, certainly people can buy stock in large publicly held firms, but it doesn't give them a real direct connection to the content creation process. It doesn't give them a direct connection to those companies. Uh, and so the program that we're building is one where fans can can buy into Skybound, they can own a piece of of the growth of the company that's making the content they love, and in the process, as they become insiders, they can engage more directly and, and engage directly in conversations with us about the content, the content creation process, and you know have opportunities to to be the core collectors and and you know with our collection offerings and you know early adopters and early proselytizers for everything that we do. So you mentioned 6,000 fans have sort of taken part in the scheme. Can you reveal how much they're paying for a, a share or how much you've raised through the scheme so far? Absolutely. So the Republic campaign, which is now closed, we, I think the number was, I'm saying close to 6,000. I think the number was about, you know, just over 5,700 fans 
fans. The share price was $500 per share. We raised close to $18 million in equity. And what's been great about that for us is we're now engaged with those fans in an ongoing conversation about everything that we're doing at Skybound. They're on the inside, you know, seeing early details of all the projects that we're working on. So that's been really, really exciting. What I mean, what do they get for their 500? Is this like a, a crowdfunder where you, you know, for your money, you get certain levels of, of entry or what, you know, would you say this is, you know, literally like buying a share and, and they're treated as a, a shareholder, essentially, there's no fan perks, as to put it one way? Well, there's both. I mean, the fan perks is more for fun than anything else in this in this situation. It's not like a Kickstarter where it's a pre-sale necessarily. We did we did do fan perks because we, you know, for the fun of it. So there were certainly things that people received, you know, there's some lithographs, there were some meetup opportunities for some highly engaged folks uh, and all that stuff has been really fun. I, I got to meet with some folks down in San Diego and it's been great to chat with them directly and hear about why they were, were excited to invest and, and, and why they're interested in the future of, uh, of Skybound. But the core of it, principally, they are receiving shares in the company. They are part of our cap table going forward. And so, I mean, what $18 million, it's obviously a huge amount of money. In the scale of TV budgets, it's perhaps not so big. What do you hope to use with it? Or what, what can you say about the equity plans you have with the money that you're raising? Well, and and I think it it's, again comes back to how diversified we are in, in terms of the, the, the kind of content that we're doing. So a lot of that money is going towards uh, funding more video games, f- funding more comic books, you know, funding tabletop games and collectibles and, and all the other activities that we have as a company. The core of, of the fundraising is to allow us to expand. So these M&A activities we're pursuing are certainly bolstered by that in addition to other equity that we had, you know, from the success of the company prior. And, you know, more than anything, you know, part of the promise of connecting creators with fans is being able to keep the decision making around the content that we make across all forms of media in-house. So the equity gives us the leverage to be able to do that. We're less reliant on third-party distribution partners in order to bring the stories that our fans love from the creators that they follow to market. And and you're now expanding then, so you're coming into Europe and offering the same scheme into Europe now for fans there? It's a similar scheme. So we're launching, Republic has a sister platform called Cedars in the UK, and and, uh, you know, we're uh, hoping to launch on the Cedars platform very shortly. We have a pre-offering that's that's gone live on Cedars. We're, we're testing out some different things this time around, Michael. Uh, you know, principally, uh, Cedars is, is only open to UK and European investors. You know, certainly UK and European investors were able to invest through the Republic campaign and did, but this is specifically geared towards the UK and European audience and the Cedars platform. The members of the Cedars platform are very much in, in the European market. So, uh, you know, it's 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 focused and targeted. But another big thing that we're playing around with this time out is we've, we've created a much lower entry price for the offerings. So uh, investors in Cedars can come and invest for I believe you know a, a ten pound minimum and and get you know fractional share ownership in the process. So we're curious to see whether or not that opens us up to you know a wider audience and wider opportunity to, to engage with fans in the process. And are they then able to buy more shares in the future? Is this sort of an ongoing thing, or is it like a once only once in a lifetime kind of opportunity? Uh, 
It's, you know, it's a good question. I don't know that we have fully decided exactly how far we're going to take the Skybound part of the reggae offering. I'm sure we're going to continue to open up Skybound equity as we continue to expand. At the same time, this is also, you know, an entry point for us to do equity crowdfunding campaigns around around products. So we are going to be rolling out some of those campaigns next and, you know, and looking for, you know, this investor group or wider fan base to uh, to create co-funding opportunities for the projects that we're going to be making. I mean, I dare say you would have done this anyway because of the fandom sort of emphasis that you have at the company. But what do you think it says about just the state of the industry internationally that companies such as yourselves are are looking for increasingly creative ways to, you know, re- raise revenue and, and build some sort of, uh, you know, resources um, at, at such precarious times in, in the marketplace? Well, I mean, look, I think I can speak for Skybound, you know, more than anything else. You know, we did have a lot and do continue to have a lot of opportunities to take equity from private equity companies. We have opportunities from venture capital companies. You know, even in these tighter times, you know, we're a profitable company, we're an expanding company. And so that interest is very high. I think for us strategically, the goal with pursuing the Reg A was we felt like it was time for the broader audience to have access to a growth company like Skybound as opposed to that opportunity being you know restricted to, to purely that world of private equity and venture capital and you know we think that that you know we're we're hoping that we're going to be able to reward our fandom from you know from for their fandom as opposed to we providing those rewards to the private equity and venture capital class and just you know i guess looking ahead what's what's next for you what can you talk about and and what perhaps are some of the the ongoing challenges or the new challenges that you're sort of looking at as we sort of come into the end of the year and into 2024? Well, I'm certainly relieved to see that there's conversations happening between between the WGA and AMTPT at this point. I'm really, really hopeful that the writers are able to get what they're looking for out of that negotiation and, and that we can, you know, we can get back to work on that side. You know, this year has been a really exciting year for us at Skybound because we're celebrating the 20th anniversaries of both The Walking Dead and Invincible. And I'm really excited about everything that we have planned around those anniversaries as we move into the fourth quarter. There's a lot of new merchandising releases. And then, of course, I'm very excited about the launch of season two of Invincible in early November. It's a really special show. Our fans are really responding. You know, we dropped a surprise secret special episode a couple weeks back during Comic-Con, and that got a tremendous reaction from the audience. And so, you know, not just season two, but the video games that we're launching in the Invincible world and the board games we're launching and some of the merch opportunities we think it's it's really just going to take off right and and wider issues what what are the things on your radar that you're you know once the strike ends what's what's going to be the the next issue do you think that we'll all be talking about well i think you you alluded to earlier i think that i don't think the strikes are going to be the end of the conversation about ai i think it's the beginning so you know i think that as we think about about the potential of that technology trying to find a way to use it for good is going to be um, a real challenge for all of us and then Admittedly, the other challenge that I think we face is what the model for for film and television is really going to look like going forward. You know, I think the strikes are revealing, you know, a core inequity, but it doesn't change the fact that that for the larger companies who've, you know, who've moved into streaming, that they're not feeling like the financial model has necessarily delivered for them either. We all love this content and we want to continue to make this content, but we also need to make sure that we, we're all making, you know, a, a reasonable and equitable livelihood from it. So I think that's 
that's going to be a challenge and seeing what that does to commissioning structures and, you know, and what that could open up in terms of opportunities. You know, that's that's definitely where, you know, part of where our focus is going to be coming out of the strikes, hopefully very soon. Estonia is a new eight-part drama series based on the true story of the 1994 sinking of the MS Estonia, a ferry on which more than 850 people perished when it went down in the Baltic Sea within one hour of running into a storm. The series comes from Finnish showrunner Miko Oikonen and is directed by Swede Mans Manson, whose credits include Chernobyl, and produced by Finland's Fisher King for MTV and TV4, with Germany's Betafilm distributing. Ahead of the world premiere of Estonia at the Toronto International Film Festival on Monday, Manson spoke to Michael Picard about shooting the series in five different countries and how the show handles the unanswered questions around Europe's worst peacetime maritime disaster, which was recently subject of a new public inquiry. I mean, Estonia is certainly a risk, was it, would you say? How would you classify, you know, the, the effort that you had to, to get across to get this made? I mean, yeah, I mean, for me, as a Swedish filmmaker, you know, I don't think I could ever imagine a higher sort of risk or a bigger <laughs> challenge, to be honest, you know, because it's um, it's just such a sensitive and, and uh, complicated topic to this day that it's just, I mean, it's basically a cold case, right? It's just an ongoing investigation and there's so much pain and there's so much uh, such a trauma basically so i think you know it was it was really really something that i never thought i would engage with when i first got the scripts uh, from Mo. um but then reading it you know reading his scripts i i really felt very quickly that this outside perspective that he as a finnish writer gave to what i as a swedish uh, a citizen considered my uh, disasters like mm-hmm. i was i was 12 years old when it happened you know it was like summoned in school for a head count you know oh. who's here who did we lose you know and, mm-hmm. and and i think i his outside view on what i thought was mine that he actually was explaining to me was equally uh, a finnish thing and also of course an estonian disaster you know which mm-hmm. i think sweden being this in the baltic sea this sort of what we, sometimes thinking of ourselves some kind of baltic superpower you know estonia was like a brand new country that hardly had even existed i don't think we genuinely really took in that this was also a disaster on the other side of the of the baltic sea you know so mm-hmm. i think that's really the strength of of the scripts to take these three different nations uh, and their different perspectives on this one event that all thought were uh, our own. Definitely. I mean, what, what's it like for you now when you mention you're making Estonia? I mean, is it still a subject that brings up a lot of emotion or how, how would you say the current mood is as this series is about to sort of come out, you know, reflecting on yeah. what happened? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, I'm excited about it because I think the, the tension in the air when you talk about it and, and these questions to whether can you, can you not, is this okay or, you know, is it mm-hmm. too soon? or I think I'm very confident from my Swedish side of it that we've found an approach that is really, really relevant and that uh, really makes sense for us to revisit uh, mm-hmm. everything. Again, through these three 
nation's perspectives or the multinational sort of perspective on it, I rediscovered the whole concept of, of this not having any kind of accountability uh, whatsoever, you know, and, 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 and that 852 people lost their lives and no one is held accountable and there's no legal case, like the prosecutors didn't take it uh, to court. And, you know, the lack of accountability was sort of just something that we forgot about, at least in Sweden, no one really talks about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I and I think the scripts and, and the investigation that sort of didn't lead anywhere and the fact that our three nations investigated ourselves, that basically the, the suspects, the authorities that uh, are, are sort of set in place to make sure something like this could never happen, they were tasked to find out who was to blame. And they, in the end, declared that no one is to blame. So I think that whole absurd, almost Kafkaesque sort of investigation was something that Miko really found a way, an entry point into, and that, that, that really, to me, warranted revisiting the whole thing. Yeah, I guess, you know, there's many different ways you could have told this story and, and you do flash back to sort of what happened on the night. But I mean, you could have, I mean, how, how far do you delve into the, maybe the personal stories of the, the crew, the families of the survivors, the victims, families? How how much do you delve into those or is it purely a, a kind of a look at it abroad from the investigation, would you say? I mean, it's it's the, the it's it's driving all the eight episodes, the investigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then through the investigation, we, we we either flash back to the the events of the night or we bridge this to the the families and the repercussions or or, mm-hmm. or how, how it affects society basically in the, in the years afterwards. But I think the sort of overriding arc of that sort of classical trope in a way, investigation, is really working in, in interesting ways when you slowly realize that these are the potential culprits doing this investigation, you know, and that that family members and survivors are to this day, you know, uh, uh, questioning the um, the investigation itself. I mean, it's 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 absurd that we don't know what happened. You know, I mean, that's it's science fiction in a way that it sank. These vessels are not supposed to be able to sink back in 1994 in in the Baltic Sea. But it's just as much of a mystery to me that that we can't explain what happened. You know, I mean, obviously, I noted that you'd worked you know, on on yeah. Chernobyl recently as well, and obviously that's another recent historical disaster i mean when you were approached about this project did you kind of draw parallels in terms of the way the story was handled or just your own involvement in how you would revisit this story for sure there are similarities in in, in terms of how it's uh, structured and, and built up i mean what i took away from the experience i had when when johan asked me to help out with chernobyl mm. i mean i had never done any tv work before then i was i had been all in features and and I think I mean everything I know about TV I learned from from Craig and and, and Johan on that production and and I think what I really carried with me was just shooting in in the Ukraine and in, in Kiev and and having crew members who you know were part of these events and who would remember we had PAs you know who would remember how the choppers were flying over them you know with those sand uh, drops and I think to be able to now as a Swede in a, a purely Nordic Scandinavian setting back home, sort of engaged on the same level that I felt that the Ukrainian crews we were working with. I mean, that was something that I, I really felt helped in terms of guiding the project and, and guiding the tone and these ethical, moral uh, 
lines, you know, and, and how to treat this, basically. And, and so when you, you're reading the script and, I mean, did you immediately say yes or, or what were kind of some of the things you were thinking about on a directorial level in terms of what the project would involve and, and you know, whether it could be done, I guess, to a level and an ambition that I imagine you had for a project such as this? Yeah, yeah no, I mean, of course, I mean, I think that the, the sensitivities and, and, and the moral ethical uh, lines there was, was a major consideration. And, and I think it took me a long time to commit, basically. Um, to me, one uh, major factor was just to be able to assemble a creative team around me that I really had faith in, that I trusted and that I had worked with before. And I think J.P. Passi, our, our cinematographer, our DP who shot all eight episodes, who I had worked with on, on, on the second unit on Chernobyl, that was a key thing for me because I, I knew from his feature work, his sensibilities and, and how well they would be aligned with this kind of material. And and then I also managed to get my longtime editor, who I've done all my feature work with, uh, who's English, George Cragg, uh, who he had also basically been a feature editor. He did this Academy Award nominated um, doc called Collective a couple of years ago, which again is sort of a, that, exactly that kind of balancing act, you know. And, and he did that brilliantly. And, and, and he had just started doing TV work uh, with, with um, uh, the Essex Serpent. And, and then I was just lucky to be able to bring both of them into this, to have George sort of be the lead editor over, across the whole season and, and JP shoot every single day, basically. That was really also a big thing for me in order to have the courage to take the leap. Yeah. And then once you did commit and then you made the decision to do this, I mean, would you say you have a particular directing style or, or did you have to work out, I guess, the visual language in which you would tell this story, both from the investigation point of view, but also when you yeah. are in those flashbacks and, and the ship is sinking, yeah. did yeah. that demand yeah. a different kind of language? I mean, I think what we managed to do in a good way was to make sure that the most difficult things production-wise, the the, the the events of the night, shooting in, 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 in the water tank in Brussels, going on a, a real vessel that we managed to source in Istanbul uh, and really build those events first to sort of make sure that whatever sort of whatever we did stylistically we we set that immediately and that everything else the 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 investigation and the sort of uh more normal world so to speak with 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 the families back home and 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 the subsequent three years that we we deal with and show that they would be aligned with what we had done uh those first months of, of shooting i think that was also really really important and, and and key to sort of keeping it together because otherwise i was just concerned that we would find something that we really really loved and made sense for the sort of normal scenes and then we would come to the water and the disaster and it, we would be forced to sort of work in a completely different way and it would just be such a strange mix you know but i think also the coming back to the sort of dealing with something that you have i mean lived through is pushing it right but i was you know this has shaped me growing up and and swedish society and i think then it was also very very easy i felt to no matter how difficult or sensitive the scenes or 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 the sequences or the shooting day to sort of go into that and also be able to work instinctively as to what is right and what is wrong and not and not sort of over plan it and 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 shot list and and storyboard this you know except when when it, when it was technically needed um, of course for production reasons but I really trust you know your sort of human level gut feeling approach mm -hmm. to it
Did you have a then, um, I guess, a particular way of working with the actors? Because I guess particularly when you're in the water, that's one level of difficulty, but also you're you're dealing with some very emotional scenes and, and difficult scenes. So how did you want to work with your actors to to get that sort of spontaneity, but then also have things that you can shoot again and again if you needed to? Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I thought, I honestly thought that after Chernobyl, I would never get close to anything as complicated. I mean, we, <laughs> we but Johan sent in the second unit to the core of the Ignalina power plant. So they were they were shooting the exteriors with Jared and Stellan and we we went inside the power plant and it took us like three hours to get into location, you know, three hours to get out of the location. And I, I thought that was like on a on a level of its own. But but coming into to Estonia, I was I was just shocked that all these elements was just again on a new level. I, I it was so complicated. It was really, really complicated. And I'm just really, really grateful that we had enough time to prep and, and figure those things out and that we that we found this ship and combined all these things and made it work. I think in terms of the actors, what we always tried to do was to put them through something that was through the SFX uh, or the environment or the location as, as real as possible, you know, and then and then make it if that made life more difficult for the camera operators or or for me or 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 you so uh, directing then then so be it i think it, it was sort of our way of making sure that you know i, I mean i don't know do maybe we have a, a a tenth or even less of the budget of something like chernobyl right but sort of not lean too heavily on trying to fix everything later but capturing something in the moment at least it's something we felt very early on was the only way to sort of try to reach the artistic levels that we wanted and the realism we wanted with without having a sort of uh uk us uh budget levels you know? mm-hmm. but i mean you know you you filmed in five different countries is that right so you had to spread yourselves i guess thin to to make sure you got everything you needed in you know a lot of yeah. different like, locations yeah yeah no i mean it was a challenge and also when shooting it like a feature film again that was what what johan was doing with with chernobyl and i i think that was really inspiring to see that you don't necessarily have to split things up per episode and and you know i think when you are location driven or available access uh driven or or actor availability driven like that it works i felt if you have the same dp that just follows everything. So I was I was establishing a new country, um, a new set of cast, and then I was leapfrogging basically to the next country and just jumping as we went along. And you also kept shooting, and you know it's it's. I mean every every production is a miracle that you know it, it you get something together and that it that hopefully it's powerful and emotional and, and meaningful enough in the end. But I think this was um, it was quite a feat. You know, it's like shooting in that many countries. That's I mean that's what I would sort of think would be only sort of james bond level you know yeah. but but somehow we managed to pull that off can you kind of explain what you were doing in each country obviously brussels you were in the water tank where else were you and what were you doing there yeah i mean we you know considering the sensitivity of of, of the i mean the shipping industry in the baltic sea or the shipping lines were not that cooperative or i mean not at all i mean i, I and i understand them why would they give us a vessel to to sort of uh, stage this you know when um, they're still sort of dealing with the memory of it so that was just a closed door and we struggled for a long time to find uh, a ship 
that we could use, you know. And and I think we were fortunate enough to find one in the end in in, in Istanbul, uh, right? And and I think that's where we did the we sort of merged. I mean, the production design uh, leave uh, ask was was incredible to sort of find a way for the the these fairly big set pieces in the tank, and then the uh, real ship in Turkey, and then sets and locations that was sometimes we managed to find places that could double for for ship interiors uh, in Finland or in Estonia. And then we did the choppers in a museum in Gothenburg. I mean, that's that's exactly what we did on Chernobyl. We, we were in the aviation museum in Kiev, you know, doing a lot of the chopper work there. And, and, and that's sort of just reapplying that to the Gothenburg uh, Aviation Museum with the same the same choppers uh, that they used, you know, on the day that are in storage now. So, um, yeah, that's sort of what we did in each yeah. country. Wow. Yeah. In terms of the chopper work you were talking about there, how, what does that look like in practice? You're not flying them up in the air then, presumably. You're on the ground filming what interiors? Yeah, I mean, I think I felt in the in the pilot episode, I, I, I did do one uh, flying for real scene uh, when, when, when part of the uh, uh, investigation team is traveling to Tallinn and I, f- I just felt that it was nice to be able to have one real thing to then help to sort of cheat uh, possibly uh, for the rest uh, mm-hmm. but but yeah no it's it's a uh, museum choppers uh, you know that are on some kind of a shaker device <laughs> uh, with with black screens and, and tracking marks and yeah, yeah so and I mean you know we hear often about you know the water work that TV series do now and it's all very impressive you know looks like you're in the middle of the sea when you're obviously you're in a studio in brussels um but i mean can you talk us through just what that is like filming in water in those tanks and and something as big and on a scale like this obviously yeah, yeah. um what what was I mean, that like for you i think i think the, the the real challenge there was always the sort of temptation to show too much you know i mean because you have all these production toys you have all these cubic meters of water that you can ask someone to push a button and the 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 special effects and it's really tempting to do more than you sometimes need and i think their jp uh was was really fantastic in just constantly reminding us and 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 pushing for also limiting you know uh, visibility sometimes Mm -hmm. because of course you know you you paid for these enormous resources and and so it's like the sort of temptation for production value right i mean that's that's always going to be there when you have these things Whereas to really get the the power and and the and the 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 experience of, of being there, I think you you sort of have to limit yourself all the time and play with the chaos and play with the darkness and and uh, yeah. So that was that was a that was a tough balance on on set basically. Yeah. 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 No, I can imagine a, a lot of directors I speak to sort of talk about you know drones and helicopters and things and and you have to like you say be perhaps restrict yourself to not show too much and not go too mad with the toys that <laughs> that yeah, you could use yeah. nowadays um, and also I, and also the fact that we don't know you know that's the thing we don't know what happened right that's that's part of the whole thing and and it's it is a mystery it is this cold case and and i think that limiting our view and and restricting it at times and that's also what miko has been doing really well with with the script and how the episodes are are structured that that we're sort of slowly discussing 
discovering new things step by step. But in the end, it's it's you know it's still no one knows anything. So it, it was it was tricky in that sense that it, real events, right? But real events that is a mystery. So you sort of have to be true to something that is unreal, you know. And and that was also every day with art department or costume and all the HODs, you know, the balancing act as well. Yeah, yeah. Just on that, then, what would you say um, about the series in terms of its conclusion? You know, how have you decided to to end it when, like you say, it's still not quite clear what what did happen? So, how was that something you and, and Miko had to talk a lot about in terms of how you would conclude the series? Yeah, yeah, no, that was a big discussion for sure. And and especially in light of there now being, I mean, dives just happening uh, a month ago and, and, and this investigation being revisited. And we didn't know when we started, you know, to what extent there would be a new sort of uh, announcement and when and how. And I think it was just for me important, again, from the Swedish point of view, that wherever we arrived at the end of episode eight, that it wouldn't be in any way tied to what maybe will be revealed, you know, in the future. Um, and But that that's a tricky, yeah, that was tricky balance as well. And I mean, who knows? We, we have no idea what the results of this new investigation. I mean, they just reopened it last year, right? So, I mean, we, we, we don't know. Yeah. So the this, this series is obviously going to premiere in Toronto and, and hopefully we'll all see it soon. Um, I mean, what would you just say to, to people coming to watch it? What do you hope they take from it? What were your ambitions, you know, making the series in terms of what audiences can look forward to or learn about what really happened? I mean, I think I think the main sort of takeaway for me, again, it's it, it's going to be hard for me to get around this, this lack of accountability. You know, that was sort of me, for me, the entry point in the end, it, it, it's it's what gave meaning to uh, revisiting the whole thing and, and and then this multi-perspective on something that we think is our disaster, but of course, it's it's always going to be someone else's as well. But I think maybe Miko is even more apt at uh, addressing that particular question, you know, in terms yeah, of yeah. what he um, initially uh, felt uh, would be the takeaway when he wrote it. Mm-hmm. But I think, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's also, I think, uh, a beautiful, powerful, open-ended um, ending in the end that I think will be ready for whatever happens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I suppose we see it here sometimes in the UK when we have stories like this that, you know, the TV drama will reopen a lot of those investigations or debates, as you say. So do you think, is that likely, do you think, that this will prompt more debate, more investigation? Or I I mean, what I do think, and I I hope to a certain degree it will, is for just the general public in Sweden to sort of think about the fact that that we weren't holding anyone accountable. And because I think it's a pretty... Nordic and or maybe even more so Swedish phenomenon, right? This this sort of fear of conflict. I mean, that's at least <laughs> my Sweden. You know, we we don't want to sort of engage and we avoid conflict at all cost. And I think maybe this is a very Scandinavian Nordic tale in that sense. That I, I think in the U.S. it would have gone to court, right? I mean, in in Japan, maybe everybody would have resigned and just and said uh, we're sorry. You know. Uh, none of that happened, which to me is still inexplicable. The Africa Channel is on the lookout to further broaden its slate of scripted and unscripted acquisitions and originals partnerships, according to its recently appointed Head of Content and Brand, Ava Hall. 
a core mission for the US-based cable network is bringing contemporary pan-African content to black North American audiences, as well as to a wider African diaspora through its digital streaming service Demand Africa. The company is also looking to expand its international footprint in Brazil with free ad-supported streaming TV and possibly linear cable networks, as well as boosting local Brazilian content on its platform. Hall spoke to Ed Waller about these plans. Uh, my name is Ava Hall. I am um, head of content and brand at the Africa Channel. Could you just give us a little snapshot of the state of the US content, the US TV business right now? Well, it's a very interesting time in the US um, relative to content. Um, largely, because at this very moment, there is a major strike happening uh, amongst uh, the unions. And so I think that has put uh, the content space um, in a bit of a um, tight, it's a bit of a tight place. Um, I think with the evolution of, um, you know, the industry overall with streaming and digital channels, um, everyone's un trying to figure out how to best capitalize for themselves um, in those spaces. How how's that that strike combined with the sort of economic pressures, if you like, how's that impacted not just the industry but Africa Channel as well? Well, the fortunate thing is that the Africa Channel um, has been able to work with um, international talent, um, you know, behind the scenes, uh, behind the camera and in front of the camera. So um, times like this, we can at least continue to develop and um, execute across our, our strategies. Um, but we still are looking, um, particularly in our production arm, um, we still are looking to sell content. So um, with this kind of uh, economic you know, slowdown in the US, everyone's not as open to, uh, you know, to buying as we'd hope they'd be. Cool. Um, give us, give us um, some comments about how Africa Channel's content strategy is, is evolving. The Africa Channel's content strategy um, is evolving as we grow um, from our anchor business, which has been our linear channel. Um, now that we've kind of um, moved into um, SVOD and AVOD and FAST channels, um, we have to look at you know programming differently. Um, we've been able to um, accumulate a healthy library of content, of uh, acquisitions, but now how we use them across um, say our linear business versus our VODs um, is quite different. Um, we've been able to use our premium content uh, continuing on our linear channel and on uh, behind the paywall. And now we have a, um, you know, our fast channels that we use, you know, mostly as a vehicle to promote to uh, almost like a funnel, if you will, to our linear channels and our um, in our SVOD. Um, and so I think largely we look at, um, you know, acquiring content and or developing content across those three uh, areas of business. How does, how does content move, and indeed audiences move, between those different platforms that you now have? Yeah, I, I think um, our audiences have changed a little bit as well as our channels uh, our channel offering have, has grown. Um, we still tend to skew a little older on our uh, linear channels where we have now, 
younger viewers who are, you know, looking for to connect with heritage and or looking to connect with our specific content, um, you know, looking for our, our, our VODs and our, our FAST channels. Tell us about how Africa Channel works with and relates to Demand Africa. So the Africa Channel is literally three companies with one mission. Um, and so the Africa Channel is branded uh, the Linear Channel and Demand Africa is uh, what we brand our SVOD and our AVOD channels. So when we choose to use our library uh, and our, our, our programming strategy across both the Linear Channel and the, the AVOD channels, we tend to have our premium content on Linear and as well as behind the paywall. Um, and we tend to not have the same content on both channels at the same time. So there is a bit of windowing strategy that we use uh, across, um, you know, between the two teams so that we, you know, we can leverage that. And obviously with our FAST channel, we may put a couple of episodes of a series uh, on and, you know, then direct them to our SVOD to get the remaining of our, um, of that, you know, particular series. How is, I mean, obviously in the streaming environment, there's lots of talk about cord cutting, how has that impacted your, you know, your numbers, if you like, for the linear service? So in terms of our linear service, um, we are actually still um, doing well in our, in our linear service. I know across the industry, um, it's known as a, perhaps a, something that's dying a bit. Um, but we are actually still doing well, and also the same with our VOD, our SVOD. We are seeing actually growth uh, in our SVOD uh, offering as well. Um, and I think it's largely because we are a niche channel, so um, audiences come there for a specific, you know, a very specific reason. So we've been able to still manage to keep um, a core audience on both linear and see growth in our SVODs offering. What about the, 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 the audience profile? I'm interested in um, who, who watches, uh, what demographic, what, what kind of audience profile that you, that you have, because obviously there's a lot of data that comes from now that you have digital services, it must reveal quite a lot about your audience demographic. Our audience demographic um, on Linear tends to be um, the 35 plus, uh, uh, largely skewing towards women. And our demographics on our uh, VOD channels are 25 plus and a, um, almost both a, a equal representation uh, amongst gender as well. Okay, let's let's talk a little bit about the content. Um, uh, tell us. Let's start with the acquisitions, uh, the, the content that you license from um, international domestic sources. So, give us a little, in a nutshell, if you like, what's working, what isn't working, what are you looking to license? Um, the content that does very well on our uh, on our platforms are number one, scripted dramas. Um, we tend to have um, telenovelas that do very well um, from the South African market. Um, some also from West Africa or Nigeria do very well. True crime 
does extremely well on um, both our linear as well as our um, our VOD offerings and uh, documentaries do well and in some of the well a lot of the cultural verticals um, that are um, that resonate with Africa music does very well um, food lifestyle tra food travel lifestyle to do very well um, I think those are kind of the top genres that perform um, at best on our on our platform some of the titles that have performed extremely well or that have been hits on our platform um, would be some of our telenovelas out of uh, South Africa, uh, titles like The Wild or um, Ashes to Ashes. Um, in addition, we've had some documentaries that have performed extremely well that are from some of our um, U.S. distributors, um, titles like The Rising um, and The Legacy. And these are this is content that actually has um, a global resonant, but maybe profiles on, um, you know, athletes and or, um, you know, professionals, even that are maybe African American, but still um, are global enough and of interest to um, even, you know, our diaspora audience as well. So those are a couple to, um, that I think have performed extremely well. What, uh, what are you looking for now? Are there any new genres that you intend to move into or new, new countries from Africa that you intend to get supply from? As we look to broaden our content offering, um, we, we tend to have had titles that have been from South Africa um, and or West Africa, specifically Nigeria, that have done well, but we really look to have a pan-African strategy. So we look forward to um, exploring and uh, inquiring content from East Africa as well. Um, genres that we like to um, dive deeper into um, would be music. We are strengthening our music strategy um, to do more original content around music. It um, With music, African music, rising and having this intersection with pop culture, um, we are you know, really positioning ourselves to amplify and have a platform for, um, for that as well. Um, we want to also do more true crime um, and uh, develop more scripted content. A lot of our original content has been unscripted um, thus far, um, and we have some content in development that uh, on the scripted side that we are excited about and look forward to um, developing more premium content as well. Uh, tell me more about the original content strategy. Um, so uh, the original content strategy, um, I should say, is under Tax Studios. Um, it's our, our development and distribution arm. Um, we are looking to work with premium um, uh, content writers and developers from across the continent. Um, we are looking for extremely strong stories with um, extremely strong auspices. Um, and we're looking to do content that, uh, that matters, that we are a very mission-oriented company. And so looking to continue to develop content that aligns with that. Um, one of the pieces of content that we're really excited about that we'll be premiering this fall is um, a, it's an unscripted um, docu-series called African Royale. And it's a, it's a very interesting piece. It follows a, um, 
a royal, uh, it's a royal story, if you will. And, and I think we don't get enough uh, opportunity to see what our true African royal experience is like. But in this particular case, um, Bim Fernandez, who is the uh, daughter of a billion, a Nigerian billionaire um, who's deceased, who um, is trying to make her way in the U.S. Um, and also fighting to keep her family's legacy alive. And so it's a really interesting story that I think will resonate with a U.S. audience. Um, and so it's this story is about um, heritage um, in a very unique way, and uh, also this royal story um, that's different than perhaps British royalty um, that I think uh, will resonate. So we're looking to find really unique stories like that as well. When you source content from Africa, do you, do you find that you're now competing with some of the bigger players like Netflix or Amazon or that kind of thing? Because there seems to be a lot of new demand for African content. Tell us about how, how that's changed. Yeah, <laughs> um, there definitely is uh, more interest in African content. Um, and so as we continue to um, you know, source content, we are finding that um, you know, some of the first run options that we perhaps like aren't um, always you know, available because of the bigger streamers. Um, but we feel like we have a strategy that, and, and a mission that um, is not um, about just, you know, a small percentage of your content that, that you know, focuses on Af African audiences or diaspora, but we spend our entire strategy on that. So we're hopeful that, you know, audiences, uh, you know, still come to us um, for, you know, as the source that um, you know, invest all of our strategy against that. What rights do you require from shows that you either license or commission? Um, so for our linear channel, um, when we look to license, um, we are um, obviously looking for rights in North, North America and uh, the Caribbean. And for our SVOD channels, our SVOD service, we are looking for rights outside of um, Africa. What about expanding the footprint of your services into other parts of the world? We are definitely looking to um, expand our footprint, um, specifically um, in Brazil. Um, we have a, a fast channel that we launched there really as an experiment. And since, um, since launching in Brazil, um, we have seen uh, the numbers really rise. And so to us, it's a key indicator that we will look to invest more in Brazil and um, even explore not just having a fast channel there, but um, even linear because there's still a significant opportunity for you know, peak limit, uh, linear performance um, in market as well. Are you in the, in the space of contemplating uh, licensing shows from Brazil or even from the Caribbean where you are uh, or even commissioning shows from those markets? As we launch in a new uh, territory, specifically Brazil, um, we are looking to source um, local content as well as uh, develop uh, local content, original content. 
Um, so um, we've taken, as a part of the test, we've taken our existing library um, probably about 100 hours and uh, dubbing and subtitling, um, but really would like to have a more localized um, strategy and will definitely um, acquire locally and or and for sure to develop um, original local, localized content. What about your co-production strategy? Is, is there anything we can talk about that, whether it's through studios or the channels or the platforms directly? A part of our funding strategy um, is co-production, co and we, um, we, we look to um, you know, co-produce co content when possible. Um, you know, whether it be through, um, you know, a studio and or, um, you know, other creative funding uh, avenues as well. But uh, co-production is definitely a part of our um, funding strategy. If somebody was pitching you some, uh, some piece of content, what boxes do you think would have to be ticked uh, for you to greenlight such a piece of content? I think the key... Um, the key filters for us to greenlight content um, are relevant stories, um, stories that um, obviously connect with our audience in a very specific way. Um, I think content that's game-changing, something that's perhaps not been done before or, um, or hasn't, uh, has not been done before. Um, that stands out, that would drive <laughs> water cooler talk. Um, and I think uh, content that is Pan-African in nature. And um, we're really looking to also partner with, um, you know, groundbreaking talent uh, behind the camera, in front of the camera. So I think those... Um, Strong auspices are important as well. Ava Hall speaking with Ed Waller. That's all for this episode, but you can hear more interviews by tuning in to our C21 FM internet radio station from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.